to Nehemiah chapter 6. We're working verse by verse through this wonderful book, uh, really a strong book on leadership, a strong book on just what it means and what it looks like to follow the Lord, and, and a strong book and, and a story on what it means to follow God and to live life His way, to do things His way. Last year, as we walked through the the book of Judges and the, and the whole history there of the early part of Israel with the judges leading, we saw how the people got themselves into more and more trouble trying to live and to do things their own way. And so we just saw the rebellion of the human heart. We saw how they would follow God for a time, and when it became comfortable for them and they decided that they could handle things on their own, they would begin to live on their own and forsake the Word of God, the Word of God or the will of God for their life and the calling of God on their life. And as a result, they plunged themselves into all sorts of trouble, all sorts of sin, and and ultimately into judgment. And so we saw the effects of the fallen nature that's within us when we try to live our own way. In Nehemiah, what we see post-exile is the people of God coming back, understanding that it was their sin, their rebellion that led them to exile, uh, led them away from the goodness and the blessings of God. And now, as they gather back into the promised land once again, reestablishing worship, reestablishing all of the things of their faith, they have one heart, and that is, we want to live God's Way. And so look with me in chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. We're going to read verses 15 and 16, and then um, we're going to begin to unpack this and move into chapter 7. Look what Nehemiah tells us. He says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and felt greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. It's an amazing thing that Nehemiah is saying here. He says that we, we, we went about this work that seemed absolutely impossible for us to do, much less do it in 52 short days. But it happened. God provided for us. God blessed us. God led us in this. God gave us everything that we need. He protected. He provided. And we were able to do this great work with the help of our God. But not only did we notice it, Nehemiah is saying, he says the nations around us began to realize that it wasn't just those Jews and it just wasn't this guy who was the cupbearer to the king who is now the governor, it wasn't just them, it was God who did the work. This leads us to to understand something. You see, as God's people, may we never underestimate what can be accomplished when God has called us to a work. May we never underestimate what God can do in us and what God can do through us if we will persevere in it. See, there's the the catch there. If we will persevere in the work, if we will stay in it and press on to the very end, oftentimes the great things that God wants to do in you and the great things that God wants to do through your life don't happen simply because you never started them to begin with. You never launched out in them. God put a a calling in your heart. He put a word in your mind and, and He began to lead you in a certain direction But because of whatever. You failed to ever begin. You failed to ever get it started. Or if you did start, you didn't persevere to the end. You see, the things that God puts in our hearts to do, the calling of God upon our life, so many times never make it out of the hanger of life. Or if they do make it out of the hanger, they die on the runway before they catch flight. 
The one issue that prevents you and I from experience all that God wants for us, all that God desires to do in us and through us is fear. Fear is what cripples you from every beginning. Fear is what cripples you from finishing the task, from carrying it through to persevering to the end. It's fear. But better yet, it's a misplaced fear. You see, oftentimes we fear what others may say or we fear what others may think about us. We fear the difficulties and the hardships that come with the journey that God has placed us upon. We fear all the things that might be and yet we fear or we fail to fear God. There ought to be a fear in our life. There ought to be something that shakes us to the core, that causes us to tremble. But it shouldn't be what God has called us to do. It should be God who's called us to do something. We fail many times to fear God, and yet we fear everything else. It's been said that fear is the dark room where negatives are developed. Richard Halverson said this, Men who fear God face life fearlessly. Men who do not fear God end up fearing everything. This morning, is that indicative of your life? Because you don't fear God the way you ought to, everything in your life you fear. How many of us, when the storms hit, and I'm talking about real thunderstorms and tornadoes, you're shuddering within your house because you fear the storm rather than the one who holds the storms in the palm of it. I'm not saying be crazy and walk outside with an umbrella or a big golf club and taunt God. I'm not saying that. But, I mean, that's just a real small, tangible way that we can express faith and confidence in God. You see, I believe the Bible is pretty clear that when God calls your number, your days are up. When God says your life is over, that's when it's over. And so it doesn't matter what storm is coming your way. It doesn't matter what tornadoes you're coming away, hurricane, earthquake. I mean, if you've you got a vacation planned for Hawaii this summer, I'll maybe rethink that because of what's going on out there. But those are under the control of a sovereign God. The problems you're having in your finances, in your family, in your job, and all the things in your life, those are under the control of a faithful and good God. We must not fear the things in our life, we must fear the God over our life. That was a good place to say amen, more than the two or three of you. You see, we have someone to fear, and his name is King Jesus. And it's not the type of fear that, that has you curled up in the corner, shuddering in terror. That's not the type of fear I'm talking about. Though if you're not in relationship with Jesus, that's a pretty good response to who Jesus is. Because the Bible tells us that you are under the wrath of a holy God. And so there is a, 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 a proper response of shuddering in utter terror because that's what's waiting you, the judgment of God. But if you're in relationship with Jesus, the fear that the Bible calls us to is not a one of terror. It's one of reverence and obedience. It's one of confidence in a God who is holy and good. You see, Nehemiah and many of the people here in Jerusalem possess this sort of fear in their lives. They believed and they trusted in God over and above what the circumstances of their lives told them. They, they feared and believed and trusted God over and above what the doubters said to them. When Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem would come and say, I can't believe you're building this wall. I mean, it's so, it's so despicable. If a fox were to crawl up on this fall, it would crumble. They looked at them and they didn't believe the doubters. They believed the God who was empowering them to build this wall in 52 days. They didn't allow their circumstances to dictate what they would fear. They believed and trusted in God over and above the accusations of their enemies who said, the reason you're doing this is because you want to overthrow Xerxes. You're living in rebellion. They said, that's not our plan at all. 
We're just doing what God has called us to do. We're going to reestablish worship here because we are God's people. So Nehemiah, despite his circumstances, what we find in this book is that he continued to press on in the work God had called him to do. In fear, yes, but fear of God, not of man. When the months began to pass by after hearing the terrible state of Jerusalem, what do we see there in chapter 1? We see him pressing on. We see him pressing on in prayer and preparations. When the journey to Jerusalem was long and dangerous, what is he doing? He's pressing on until he reaches the city. When opposition to the work came against the people from Senbalad and Tobiah and Geshem, what is Nehemiah doing? He continues to press on in the work. They prayed, they developed a security plan, but they continued to work on the wall. When moral corruption was found within the Jewish nobles, what does Nehemiah do? He deals with the issue and he press on in the work. And when he became the focus of overt and the covert opposition we've been looking at the last two Sundays, Nehemiah persevered and he pressed on in the work. He looked at his, his, the, the, the people who dissented against him and he says, I cannot come down. I am doing a great work. He pressed on. He persevered to the end. You see... The reason Nehemiah was able to press, persevere to the end, the reason he was able to press on, is not because of these circumstances made him into this great leader. No, you see, the statement that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks is, circumstances don't create the man, they only reveal the man's character. And the reason Nehemiah could stand here with boldness and confidence in the face of opposition, the reason he could persevere till the end is because this was who he was. He was a man who feared God. He was a man who believed God. He was a man who trusted God with everything in his life. He was a cupbearer to the king. He's not an engineer. It's not like he had a, a degree in engineering and he knew how to build this wall. He just simply trusted God. He felt the burden that this is something that I need to take action on. He goes to the king of, of uh, Persia. He shares the need. God opens the door, sends him to Jerusalem. He's building the wall and facing opposition from inside and outside the city of Jerusalem. And without fear, he stands at the face of his opposers and continues to press on. He was a godly man with godly character. He possessed a healthy fear of God. And as we've seen thus far in, in Nehemiah's tenure as this governor of Judah, we find here in Jerusalem a mixture of self-interest, people thinking all about, only about themselves. We see conspiracy. We see a, an element of spiritual devotion. We see also feigned re religiosity, especially of the prophet we talked about last week. We see faith and parochialism. We see devoted workers as well as unprincipled people all around Nehemiah with the realization that their time was, was passing, that their window of opportunity was passing to put an end to this, and the fears of invitation had not worked. Senbalat, Tobiah, and Geshem moved to, to heighten or, or, or to change their, their, their opposition against this work. They moved from the people to the leader. We've seen how they tried to lure Nehemiah away from Jerusalem to murder him or to charge him with sedition. They hired prophets to, to discredit him. And yet, what does Nehemiah do? He holds to the task. He says, I cannot come down. I'm doing great work. I'm not going to get tied up in that nonsense. I'm not going to believe in that lie or I'm not going to allow that falsehood to make me nervous. I'm doing a great work for God. He never gave in. He courageously pressed on in the work that God had called him to do. Therefore, the subject that we're looking at these three Sundays is this, pressing on. 
Because in our Christian life, we must press on. We must press on in the work that God's called us to do. We must press on in this spiritual journey that God has called us to. I mean, just think about your own spiritual life. The enemy's always working against you. We talked about that last Sunday, that there is an enemy we are facing. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities in dark places, the Bible tells us. And the enemy is subtle in his attack, and he's pressing against you. And so we must press back in the power of God's Spirit and press on. So Nehemiah here shows us how to press on in the work, regardless of circumstances. And we, let's just be honest this morning, we would prefer the circumstances to be ideal. I was uh, watching ESPN or something like that the other day, and they were talking about uh, quarterbacks in the NFL. There's some sort of 25 best players under 25, and only one quarterback was on this list. And so they're talking about all these young quarterbacks in the NFL. And, and then they got to talking about Dak Prescott. I don't know if there's any Cowboy fans in here this morning. Most of you are Redskins, so well, we got one, uh, two. Man, you guys are bold in here to raise your hands. Joe's up in the balcony waving his hand pretty good. Uh, that's dangerous amidst all these Redskins. Uh, they scalp you in here, Cowboy fans. A Cowboy Indian thing going on here. How about that? But I was listening to this, and so they began to talk about how Dak Prescott's made this statement. He wants to be the best quarterback that Dallas Cowboys has ever had. What a monumental statement that is when you think about Roger Staubach and Troy Aikman and, and the quarterbacks that they've had in, in life. And, and so they begin kind of kicking this around of, of what it means to, to do this. And I just got to thinking of what, it, what most people do in the face of type adver- that type of adversity in the NFL or any type of sports is it's easy when everything begins to close in on you just to quit. To quit. They say it's too hard. And so they talked about how our, if he's going to be the best quarterback, it means that you can't just be a quarterback with ideal circumstances. And what we want in our lives are the ideal circumstances. But I've never had ideal circumstances in my life. Have you? I've never had that. Instead, what I've experienced and what I've seen as the, the, the typical experience of most believers is as anything but ideal circumstances. And so we can't look for ideal circumstances. We've got to play with the hand that we've been dealt, and God has given us this hand. Therefore, as a follower of Jesus, let's not quit. Let's press on. It's easy to quit. Most people quit. Here's a statement that I've coined a few weeks ago when I was putting all this together. The ditches of life are full of great ideas, full of callings that were thrown out when things got too hard. Sound like your life at all? That God put up something in your heart, he put a burden on your heart, he says, I want you to do this, but when things began to go awry, when things began to be difficult, you looked at it and you said, I'm not going to do that anymore. And so you threw it, you cast it alongside you, you put it in the ditch of life, and you pressed on doing your own thing. It's easy to quit. Winston Churchill said this, we've been looking at this quote these Sundays. He says, a pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. An optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. I want you to understand this morning that God brings difficulty and allows difficulty in your life so that you can have opportunities because you grow through tension. You grow through resistance and he allows those things to take place in your life not to hurt you, not to harm you, not to be mean to you, but to grow you in your journey with him and in your work that he's called you to do. But let's be honest, life is tough. That's simply the reality of the world we live in. 
And so the way to be successful, the way for us to win, the way for us to finish the work God has given us to do is simply to plod on through the muck and the mire. I'm not a horse race watcher, but I saw this morning that Justice won again. He won the Preakness. And so he won a few weeks ago in Louisville in the muck and the mire. He's a mutter apparently. And yesterday, I guess in New Jersey at the Preakness, he was running again in the muck and the mire. And he won. Maybe he'll win the Triple Crown. Maybe he'll uh, pull it off. It's been a long time since that's happened. But that's what our lives are like most of the times as Christians is that we've got to go through the muck and the mire. We've got to press on even when it's tough. And so as we're looking here in chapters 6 and 7, we're seeing how Nehemiah pressed on through three different challenges in this work. We've seen him persevering in the face of overt opposition. We've seen him persevering in the face of covert opposition. Today we'll see him persevering through the project. He's going to see it to completion. Chapter 6, we've read these past two Sundays, we've seen that there, as chapter 6 opens, it opens opens up to us with an encouraging update on this progress. Nehemiah tells us there in verse 1 that the wall's breaches have been closed, which is a, which was a major upgrade from what we saw in chapter 4, verse 7, where there were still some breaches left. Now the breaches have been closed. Only thing left is the gates and the doors. We come to verse 15 that we read just a moment ago, and we see now those doors have been hung, those gates have been installed, the wall is complete. So Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and all of the Nehemiah's enemies are realizing this window of opportunity is closing, but they can still do something to bring him down. And so they devise all of these plots that we've been looking at over the last two Sundays to try to corrupt him, to try to murder him, to try to bring an end to this work. They moved from overt opposition to covert opposition. They plotted to intimidate. They plotted to undermine him with all of these relationships, business, and marital relationships they had with the Jews. We saw last Sunday that their opposition failed to stall the work every single time. And what we see in verse 15 is that in 52 short days, it was complete, completed. So Nehemiah was a resilient man, and his resilience shows us what it means to persevere through the project God has entrusted to you. And I want to share with you as quickly as I can three things that we learn here about persevering through the project. First of all, it requires total dependence upon God. How in the world would they complete this project in 52 days if it wasn't for God and their dependence upon Him? The answer is there is no other way. There's no way for them to complete the project, to do this great work if it wasn't for God and them depending upon God. You see, many people have the idea that God won't put on a person more than he or she can handle. You ever heard somebody make that statement? You're going through a tough time and they try to encourage you. They come up and, oh, brother, I I just be encouraged today. God's not going to place anything more on you than what you can handle. Wrong. That is a... That is a false statement. It is antithetical to the teaching of the Word of God. The truth is God always places on you more than you can handle. That's the reality. Because if you can handle it, there's no reason for Him to step into your life because you don't need Him. And so He always places more on you than you can handle. Always places more on you than you can handle. You say, Pastor, I don't know if I believe that. I don't know how a good God would ever do that to his children. I don't know how a God who says he loves us would put something so difficult in our life, like taking a loved one or allowing a loved one to go through cancer or whatever it may be. Why would God ever allow that to happen? 
Well, I've got some biblical examples where God did allow things to happen in men and women's lives that were absolutely impossible for them to handle themselves, but God allowed it and caused it into their life. Take Job, for instance. If you've read the book of Job, you know the story of Job. You see there that in just a few short weeks, Job lost everything in his life. He lost his family. He lost his finances. He lost his physical health, and he lost his friends. All of them stripped from him in just a moment. The Bible tells us that a tornado came and killed. Things fell from heaven and destroyed. His friends came and began to question his character and his rebellion against God. The Bible tells us that sores broke out on the body of Job and he would sit there on the ashes, totally despondent, totally crushed in spirit, and he would scrape his sores with a piece of pottery and a piece of clay. He lost it all in a moment. His wife looked at him and says, I mean, she, she's, she's beside herself as well. Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Basically what she's saying is, I'm cursing God. I don't care. I want him to kill me. I cannot handle the grief. I cannot handle what has happened in our life. So Job, why don't we curse God and just allow him to kill us? It would be easier than, than, than suffering like we are. He literally lost everything in his life. But you know what? Job never lost. He never lost his faith. He never lost his faith in God. And in all of that, we come to chapters 38 through 40. There's the end of the book. And we see, even though he's been contending with God and, and arguing with God for chapter after chapter, declaring his innocence, declaring the fact that he's done nothing wrong, what does he say there at the end? He says, I repent, God. I repent, God. And he begins to learn something even more about the Lord. It's goodness and faithfulness. You look at the life of Abraham and you see there that God called Abram to leave his home and to go to a land that the Lord would show him. He's a pagan and God calls him out and he says, I want you to go to this land, a land that I've not yet shown you or told you about. And Abram gets up and goes. We come to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and we see that God promises to make of Abraham a mighty nation through whom the nations would be blessed. But the only problem is Abraham is advanced in years. He has no heir of his, home, of his own. And so there's no possible way that he could ever become a father of nations. An impossible thing. A burden that he was carrying. And yet we know the rest of the story. You look at the life of Moses and you see that all that God placed upon Moses, the story there, you remember, Moses, is he, he grew up in Egypt. He was a Hebrew but grew up in Pharaoh's home. He fled there and spent 40 years on the backside of Midian in the desert. And there on the, on the backside of Midian, on the Mount of Horeb, he meets God in the, in the form of a burning bush and God begins to speak to him and call him and tell him to go back to Egypt and to lead the Israelites out of bondage. Moses' calling was to free his people from the most powerful empire the world had ever known at that time. It's an impossible task for him to do. Even if he had an army behind him, it would be impossible to free the Israelites. God placed more on Moses than he could ever handle himself. That's why he wrestled with God. Sometimes when we read the, the, the story there and we see Moses making excuses for himself, put yourself in his shoes for a moment and just feel the weight of what God was calling him to do. And that's why he's saying, God, I'm not a very eloquent speaker. God, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I'm the type of guy for this. What am I supposed to say to them? If they say, what God sent you, what is your name? I don't even know what to say, God. That's why he's wrestling with all of this. 
It's God placed something on his shoulders he couldn't do in his own power. See, the testimony of Scripture is that God always puts more on you than you can handle. He loads you down with a, rate, with a weight you can't carry because he never intends for you to carry it. Paul said in Philippians 4.19, speaking to the church there at Philippi, he says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God never intends for you to carry the burden. So this project of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem was an impossible task for this cupbearer to the king. But Jesus said in Matthew 19, nothing is impossible with God. So we learn that persevering through the project requires total dependence upon God. Secondly, we learn that it results in God receiving glory. Verse 16, we see here that all the enemies heard what had taken place. All the nations surrounding the, the nation of Israel, the people of Judah, they hear this and they begin to say, God has done this. God has done this. So when the wall was completed in 52 short days, no one questioned whether or not God had been involved. There was no one denying the fact that the God of Israel had been at work in the rebuilding of this wall. The fame of his name spread throughout the region. That's why Paul could say here in Philippians chapter 4 as he's talking there to the church at Philippi, the verse I just read, when he's thinking and celebrating what the Philippians had done through their partnership with him and the gospel, he pointed out that they had supplied his ministry, that they had sent him gifts, that they had done for him what God had put in their heart to do, even though it cost them greatly. See, the church had heard God's call to partner with this apostle and provide for the work of the gospel at great expense to them. And Paul reminded them that the Lord would supply all their needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And then he pointed out the purpose behind it all. In Philippians 4.20 says, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. God calls you and I to do great things for him. God calls us to walk in relationship with him. Not for your glory, not for someone else's glory, not for this church's glory. It's for Jesus' glory in him alone. That his name would be famous in the county of Powhatan. That his name would be famous in Virginia and America and in nations all around the globe. You see, the project God calls you to and the journey he puts you on are impossible for you to complete on your own. And he's never intended for you to do it yourself. He's never intended for you to complete the project or finish the journey on your own. Instead, he intends for you to depend on his power so that he and he alone receives the glory. If we're going to persevere through the project, we've got to remember that it requires total dependence upon God. We've got to understand that it results in God receiving the glory, and we need to be excited about that. Thirdly, we learn that it reproduces faith and holiness. Look there in chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Nehemiah says, Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they were still while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. And then God put, in, 
put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, and we're not going to go through the genealogy of the rest of the chapters. We'd be here a while. But he begins to lay out all the things that were in the genealogy. What's going on here? Now that the walls were rebuilt, we're learning that Nehemiah's concern turned toward those who were to live within the city. A big question began to be asked that he was wrestling with. Who's going to occupy the city? Will it be the people that were in the land, those who are non-Jewish? Or will it be those who are coming back from exile, those who are Jewish? Well, obviously the ones to occupy the land were God's people because this is the promised land. And so they were to be the ones who would reestablish a faithful and a holy people set apart for God. Therefore, Nehemiah looked to the genealogy of the returnees who were the first to return from exile. And so the, the genealogy we find here in chapter 7 is very similar, if almost identical to what we see in Ezra chapter 2. And so Nehemiah purposed to repopulate the city with those who would look to God in faith and those who would serve him in holiness. This is God's city. This is the city of the king. This is the promised land. And so they're reestablishing worship. They're reestablishing the honor and the reverence for the God of Israel. So this list of authenticated Jews was the first step taken to validate the identity of the true people of God so that Jerusalem could be purified. And this project of rebuilding the wall, God's purpose was to reestablish faith and holiness among his people. That's what God is doing here. It's not about building a wall. It's not about building a city. It's not about building a temple. It's about reestablishing faith and holiness among his people. And so the true Israel was delineated and the worship of God was declared through the proclamation of the word of God. And we'll get there next week in Nehemiah chapter 8 as Ezra and Nehemiah and others stand and proclaim the word of God. And the people of God stand for hours upon hours as the word of God is explained and expounded to them. In response to the preaching of the word in chapter 9, we see that the people of God confessed their sin and they pledged their renewed commitment to the Lord. See that God, what God is doing here is re, He's reestablishing faith and holiness amongst His people. The thing that was denied, the thing that was walked away from, that led to their exile, God in His sovereignty and in His grace and in His mercy is bringing them back, the remnant of the faithful coming back to worship and to honor Him. And so for us, God's purpose for the project that He's called you to and the purpose for the journey that you are on is to deepen your faith and to broaden your holiness. You say, why am I going through the things I'm going through? Why am I struggling with what I'm struggling with? Why are, does every day seem to be so difficult? God, if you love me, why am I going through this? The reason you're going through that is God wants to deepen your faith and he wants to broaden your holiness. He wants his Holy Spirit to set down upon your life. He wants him to, to expose any and all sin in your life so that holiness is broadened in your life. He wants to push out all things of this world so that you are a faithful and a holy worshiper of God. Faith and holiness is what he desires. Hebrews eleven six says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Leviticus 19.2, God tells us there in the law that you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 
God calls us, God holds us to be faithful. God holds us and calls us to be holy. And so this morning, if you're in relationship with Christ, God has called you to live out by faith and to walk in holiness. He's called you to live separate from this world. Your spiritual journey of the Lord and the projects God calls you to. And that is, what is the, the, the calling he's ha- he has on your life? For some of you, it's a small group leader. For some of you, it's serving in some sort of capacity within the church. Some of you, it's all of those things. All of us is to be a witness for Christ where we live, where we work, where we, where we play, where we go to school. All of the projects he's given us in our life. He's given us those so that we might deepen in our faith. That we might believe that God can do the impossible and that we cannot do anything without his help. They are to teach us to trust and to rely upon the Lord more and more each day. They teach us to give God all the glory because you realize that you brought nothing to the table except sin and shame. And yet he received you to himself and he's bestowed upon you grace and mercy and goodness and faithfulness and all the blessings of heaven. And as a result, what happens in all of that, even as you struggle, is that your faith grows and your holiness abounds and it's all to the fame and the glory of of your God, and of your Savior. You know why you're struggling today in this life? It's because you live in this world. And that God is allowing things in this world, the sin and the things that come with that, to shape you, to mold you, and to remake you. Sometimes, let's be honest, the reason you struggle is because you're walking at a guilty distance. But as a follower of Jesus, even the consequences of your sins, and sometimes people ask this, Pastor, does God punish his children? Yes. I firmly believe that the Word of God teaches us that God punishes us as his children. The Bible tells us that a father punishes his children, and so God is our father. He will punish us. But oftentimes the punishment he gives is simply our own consequences to our sin. And God uses those in grace and mercy to bring us back to where we need to be to repent of that sin and trust Him more. So the journey and the projects drive us toward holiness. As you walk with God in faith, you are drawn to greater levels of holiness that infiltrate new areas of your life. So your sanctification is broadened. There's another thing that takes place along your spiritual journey and through the projects God gives you. See, the Lord uses your story to build faith and to develop holiness in others. See, as you can tell your story and share your testimony with others, that I was once this, but now God has saved me and God is using me. Even as a follower of Jesus, I fail. I might have failed greatly in my life. There might be great moral failure in my life. I might have done something that from a human perspective is unforgivable, and yet the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God has forgiven me and redeemed me and restored me. And so as you share your story of grace with others, what does it do? It leads others to a place of brokenness and faith. It leads believers to greater depths of holiness. That's why when we rub shoulders with one another, the Bible says that like iron sharpening iron, one man is sharpening another. And so as we tell our stories, as we allow God to shape us and mold us, and we live in biblical community with one another, we are deepening in our faith, broadening in our holiness, and it's all to the fame and to the glory of Jesus. He allows you to introduce the gospel into people's lives, to lead them to faith in Jesus. 
see the struggles that you're going through and the difficulties that you're facing, the story of your life, it's not about you. Your story is never about you. You, know who, you want to know who your story is about? It's about God. It's about others. It's about God. It's about how you are in relationship with God. It's about how wonderful and gracious he's been to you. And it's about you declaring that to others. So what God is doing to shape you and form you, it's not just for you. It's for his glory and it's for the betterment of others. And so may we look to our struggles and may we look to our difficulties. May we look to those things that come against us in this life and say it's for the glory of God that I'm facing this. And it's for the betterment of others. And so I'm going to press on to this work. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to shut up. I'm going to press on because it's about Jesus and it's about those who need to hear of Jesus and be encouraged to walk with Jesus. And so this morning, what is your story? What kind of story is God writing upon the pages of your life? Is it one of deepening faith? Is that the testimony of your life that, 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 that as you struggle, even this morning, God is using that to deepen your faith, that today you have a stronger and a better understanding of what it means to walk closely with Him and believe Him in the difficult times than you did yesterday. In my previous church, as I was the community groups pastor, the small groups pastor there, I had a wonderful small group, young adult, married couples class. The leaders of this class and many of the, most of the people in the small group really understood that God didn't just have them together, didn't have them together just to study the Bible. I think sometimes in our small groups or Sunday school, we gather together just to study the Bible. But let me tell you, there's more than that. God wants us to study the Bible, but it's not about information, it's about transformation. And so they understood as they, as they gathered together, as they lived in biblical community with one another, as we studied the Word of God together, they understood that God was writing a story in each of their lives that could impact other people's lives. And so they believed the Lord would use them to strengthen and restore the brokenness in marriages in the community. They believed the Lord would use them to heal wounded hearts. They believed that God would use them to bind up financial ruin in marriages and families. They believed that God would use them in their small group to awaken many to life in Christ. And so they saw their personal spiritual journeys and the project of their small group as the work of God fleshing itself out in and through their lives. It wasn't just about religious motions, feigned religiosity. It was about, I understand God has called me to this. I understand that I'm not a, a finished project. I'm a work in progress. But as I walk faithfully with, with, with the Lord Jesus, he's going to use me to speak and encourage others. And so we're going to do this thing and change the culture around us. They were never satisfied to go through the motions. But instead, they wanted to experience and accomplish all God intends for them. And so as a result, God was glorified through each new profession of faith. God was glorified with each new restored family. God was glorified with each new changed life. I remember getting a call. I had just arrived to, in Honduras the morning before. I get a call from back in my hometown there or the town I lived, and I heard about someone in that small group whose family, whose marriage just fell apart through infidelity. And I thought from that moment or at that moment that that marriage was done. I thought that that family was broken up, that nothing could be done. But what I saw over the next several weeks and months is that small group grabbing the horns of the altar, believing the word of God, praying and seeking the face of God, and working with this two, these two people 
And God restored their marriage. And today they are healthy. Was it because they did it? No, it was because God did it through them. They persevered through the project. When you decide to press on and when you decide to persevere through the project that God has called you to, life usually becomes more difficult. You need to understand that life will not become easier. It will usually become more difficult. See, the enemies opposing you will increase. He wants you to quit. And so it is here that you will learn what you're made of. But as our statement has been through these last three Sundays, circumstances don't create the man. They only reveal his character. You won't quit if you've already decided not to quit. If you've already said, I'm going to be a man or a woman that's going to face the fire and come through at the end, you won't quit when the fire comes. So this morning, are you a person of faith? Do you ever need, do you have a never give in perspective on life? Or are you the type of believer who presses on with Jesus regardless of the circumstances? Or do you give up when things get tough? The difficulties this morning that you're facing are opportunities. Listen to this. There are opportunities to look up. There are opportunities to lean in. And there are opportunities to watch God do the impossible. And so this morning, are you going to look up? Are you going to lean in? And are you going to watch God do what seems to be impossible? Like Nehemiah, we need to be a people who spend time with God in prayer. We need to be a people who spend time in His Word. We need to be a people who spend time in His work. And we need to be a people who are watching Him do the miraculous all around us. People are being saved. Lives are being transformed. Families are being healed. Financial situations are becoming better. It's not about naming it and claiming it. It's not about prosperity gospel. It's about believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that He came to restore and redeem every person's life. And we play a role in that. Amen? You guys awake this morning? I've been preaching my heart out. Some of you are with me. I think some of you have died and gone to heaven. <laughs> Press on in the work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you're a great God. God, you've done the impossible for us. The Bible tells us that there was a day 2,000 years ago that the God of heaven, fully God and fully man, was placed upon an old rugged cross. Spikes were driven through his wrists and through his feet. A crown of thorns was rammed down on his brow. Blood flowed from his side and from his wounds. The Bible tells us he was crushed for our iniquity. He was crucified and dead. He was placed in a tomb, but three days later, resurrected to new life. God, this morning, the Bible tells us that if we, by faith, will look to the one who was on the cross, if we will lean into him and lean away from ourselves, then we can watch God do what only God can do in our lives. We can see our sin forgiven and forsaken. We can see our lives transformed and renewed. And the new resurrection life that Jesus won and conquered through his resurrection can be our resurrection. It can be our testimony. God, I know that in this room there is some that that needs to be their testimony. Now, there's a child in here, there's a teenager here, there's an adult, maybe even a senior adult but this morning. They need to come to faith in Jesus Christ.
God, I know this morning that there are Christians all across this room that are struggling. Struggling because of their own sinful and poor choices. Some are struggling because of just trying to be faithful. And the journey that you have them God, they need encouragement. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would breathe into them a fresh wind. God, a fresh fire. Lord, rather than throwing up their hands and walking away, God, they would pick up the trial and they would pick up the hammer and they would pick up whatever tool it is that you placed in their hands and they would get to work building the wall. As we sing this song, so many people, God wants to do something in their life. But the reason he, you cannot and will not do something is because you, we have already said no. I pray this morning, in this time of response, our answer would be yes to whatever it is. Yes. Yes to salvation. Yes to continuing on in the work. Yes to service. Yes to holiness and faithfulness in our life. God, may the answer this morning be yes. Bless us as we respond to your word. Give us ears to hear the voice of God. Give us eyes to see the activity of God. Give us a heart that just says yes. Pray this in the name of Jesus.